0: listening to PPEs, Praxis, Politics, Education, and Solidarity. This is a podcast series curated by the Critical Filipina Filipino Studies Collective to highlight and uplift action and scholarship that is anti-imperialist, committed to movement building about the Philippines and the Filipino diaspora. This podcast is named PPE in honor of all the Filipinos, Filipinas working on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic all over the world and their continuing fight to work safely and with dignity. This episode is hosted by Dr. Joy Salas, an assistant professor of Asian American Studies at Cal State LA, and Wayne Japanda, a doctoral candidate in cultural studies at the University of California, Davis. He's also the associate director at the Bulosan Center for Filipino Studies. They are in conversation with Dr. Michael Casaneda. An assistant professor of comparative ethnic studies in fair haven college at western washington university he received his phd in comparative ethnic studies at the university of california berkeley he is currently completing his book manuscript no separate Peace: multiracial struggles against racial capitalism in the pacific northwest the book examines the parallel and overlapping activist traditions and grassroots organizing practices Of Filipino cannery workers in Alaska and Black construction workers in Seattle between 1970s and the early 2000s. His teaching interests include critical comparative ethnic studies, anti-racist social movements, histories of racial capitalism, Asian American Native Pacific studies, and the Black radical tradition.
1: Okay. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. This is Joy Salas. I'm here with Wayne Jopanda and Dr. Michael Castaneda, and we're here to do our, I think it's our eighth episode. Oh my God, don't quote me. Our eighth episode of our podcast, (laughs) PPE by the Critical Filipino, Filipino, Filipino Studies Collective. Um, And so we're just gonna jump in with our questions and get to know Um, Dr. Castaneda, his work and his story um, and um, how he sees our field. Um, But yeah, Wayne, you wanna start?
2: Sure, Um, this is a privilege to be in the room with both of y'all folks I definitely look up to and specifically Dr. Castaneda, uh, who uh, fun fact was my first ever ethnic studies TA was uh, the the gateway person (laughs) to me falling in love with ethnic studies and scholar activism. So Mike, it's really, uh, Dr. Castaneda, it's a pleasure to have you here. First and foremost, we want to start off the the conversation around joy, especially in these trying times. What are some things that you do, or spaces you enter, to retain your joy during uh, <laughs> the Rona and quarantine? So for me,
3: uh, you know, I got two kids. Uh, you know, one nine year old, one two year old. Uh, so I just spent a lot of time with my family. I think, uh, you know, with things moving a little slower and being at home, it's actually been like a a good time to kind of reset and like actually spend more time with folks that matter uh you know one thing is uh so my daughter had her birthday in the middle of the rona uh, and since we couldn't do a birthday party we're like let's just put this money towards the N- nintendo switch you know so it was really like a gift for like my daughter was like yo uh me and my me and my partners you, you use it just as much <laughs> you know so it's like um you know, usually it's my daughter just working me and Mario Kart and like Smash Brothers, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, um, you know, my my daughter's had like a really rough time with her teacher right now uh, in terms like just straight up racist, uh, like she like put like during the, um, I, I doubt she's going to listen to this, song. I feel OK <laughs> sharing this. But uh, in terms of like you know, to punish students when they were on Zoom, like she put them in breakout rooms, right? Like so straight, like even turned the virtual space into a carceral space, right? Uh, so once we did like to kind of introduce like ethnic studies and just kind of have fun is uh, me and my daughter Lucia are, are working on a, a book, Luce Saves the Eye hotel right? So <laughs> uh, basically it's, um, you know, it's me telling stories about the I-Hotel. Uh, and part of it too is, you know, we, she grew up in, in the Bay Area, at least till she was about like five or six. Um, so one of our favorite restaurants to go to was, <clears throat> was House of Nanking, which is like the Chinese joint, like right across from the I Hotel. So she knew about the I Hotel. We like walked by She saw kind of like the murals, uh, she saw like uh, posters of the I Hotel in like my room, right? <laughs> you know, so she's always asked questions. So one of the things we do is uh, basically like I tell stories at I hotel and she talks shit about her teacher, you know, trying to me and my partner like our um, kind of embracing teaching her how to be petty with a purpose, you know, <laughs> Um and, you know, we're still like working through kind of like what the story is going to be. I'm really not trying to like turn it into a capitalist venture. You know what I mean? Uh, but uh, the story is loosely structured around uh, my daughter is in like an ethnic studies class, set in like, you know, when there was like the College of Ethnic Studies, like or like visioning the college of ethnic studies, and like the idea was to go to the iHotel. And she gets superpowers through stories she hears from different monongs. Right. So like the powers are like loosely based on Avatar is like another thing that we bonded over over the Rona. Um, and then we call developers hedge monsters right so try to you know still uh, got to introduce those ethnic studies lessons um and then um i guess you know another thing that i've like tried to find joy is like the you know this is my first year uh, I, like i've been like contingent faculty for a while but this is my first year going to faculty meetings and i think it's pretty like standards that most people hate faculty meetings <laughs> you know uh so one thing that i've done to find find joy like after that space is uh, listening to 90s R&B I'm like you can't be mad like when you like when candy rain hits you know what I mean with the beat drops, I'm like you can't be mad at that moment right so those are just some of the things you know I've done to kind of find joy
1: wow I love all of that
2: <laughs> yes to the switch yes to avatar yep, yep. yes to the book I love that Mike thank you for sharing uh, those moments of joy with us
1: yeah for I'll sure. send you a friend request for okay. Nintendo switch
2: okay all right that's <laughs> Oh, actually, first uh, follow-up question, uh, what character do you usually play with on uh, Mario Kart and Smash Brothers?
3: Uh, uh, Yoshi, I'm also. Yoshi!
2: That's that's, okay. that's my dude. I'm a perfect main. How about you, Joy? Okay.
1: Oh, I like the baby characters, any oh, yeah. of them.
2: Yes, I love that. <laughs>
1: Okay, let's not get into video games or else this okay, podcast okay. will go in a <laughs> totally different
2: direction. I got really
1: excited. <laughs> I could talk oh, about I'm... it all day. Sorry, Belle. <laughs> but anyway, going, <laughs> moving on. Um, so Michael, can you please tell us about your story and your life experience and how that's informed the questions you ask in your research and your scholarship? Because I think it's really important for us to acknowledge, because sometimes academia has this weird kind of, I don't know, obsession with trying to be objective when we know that's not the case. Um, And especially coming from an ethnic studies background, we know that, um, you know, the researchers' personal and political commitments are very integral to what they research and what they study. So, um, yeah, can you please go into more about your life experience?
3: Okay, so one thing I say is, like, my first lessons on, like, you know, how I approach, like labor history and working class history you know and racial capitalism more broadly is like lessons I learned from my mom you know in terms of she uh immigrated to the U.S. in the context of the 80s right so like she left like the Marcos dictatorship um you know you know we settled in SeaTac Washington which is um you know I describe it as like a hood suburb of Seattle (laughs) You know, like, I think like Black Samoan, like 80, probably like 40% Black, 40% Samoan and like a mixture of like everyone in between, but like solidly working class, right? Uh, you know, and I think, you know, one thing that I think about with my mom is uh, um, Teresita Castaneda, you know, she wasn't an activist, wasn't like a self-identified political person, but she taught me what it means to walk through the world with dignity. You know, I think one thing that stands out to me is, uh, you know, my uh, so far my ethnic studies graduation, George Lipsis was a keynote speaker. You know, one like a line that stuck with me because it reminded me of my family is he talked about folks who are who are broke but not broken, right? You know, I think my mom taught me what it means to be broke but not broken, right? Uh, And in terms of, you know, when I approach kind of writing about working class people you know I tried to kind of capture the d- dignity that my my mom taught me to live my life with right um and I think for me too uh, in terms of when I was a undergraduate and even like towards the end of my my high school time um you know I got involved in campus community organizing that really shaped kind of the questions that I ask. so like a couple examples of uh, So, after Initiative 200 in Washington State, which was the anti affirmative action initiative, um, there was a dynamic kind of like outreach program that grew out of students of color who like really pushed uh, the university to actually create like an outreach program, particularly because the number of incoming students of color dropped by 50% after Initiative 200 passed, right? Uh, So, uh, it was like a uh, outreach programs that combine political education with like college, college admission stuff and financial aid workshops. So like they had a unit on what is like, what is racism, you know, what is what is capitalism like what is patriarchy, what is um hetero heterosexism. Uh, and then with, we combine that with like different kind of workshops that we needed like so we'd have a FAFSA workshop and then would have conversations about like, what are the structural roots of poverty. Right, so this is something I had when I was uh one, like, uh, I didn't think I was going to get into college. I was basically like thinking I was either going to go into the military because, you know, there's folks in my family with that experience, or I was just going to get like some like job, you know, working class job, right? Um, but i I think one of the things that empowers its name was encouraging minority people to overcome with education and respect, right? Um, um, it, i think that combination of like not only getting folks like in the door but actually giving them a political education you know really kind of taught me um you know desegregation isn't just about like you know black and brown bodies having access to higher education but it's about our communities having access to liberatory education right um so i think for me like that's something that's been really important to me um And in terms of every kind of university i've gone to like a dynamic like part of like student activism has always been like outreach right because understanding that we can't survive these institutions alone right um i think another thing uh i wasn't before i got into college um i was part of i was a student in um this freedom school called the tyree scott freedom school so tyree scott was um you know a black electrician in this in the late '60s in Seattle, who, in the context of Black Power and particularly Black Power struggles uh, targeting, um, you know, um, segregated like construction sites, um, he became like a Black labor radical, right? Um, so it was named the the Freedom School was named after him. So one like the Freedom School like introduced me to like Seattle's like multiracial movement history that I've I've really kind of dedicated like my like my academic career towards like, you know, unearthing those histories. Um, but two, it was like actually created by folks um, uh, you know, who were involved in a broad kind of like set of like struggles against like uh you know, racism, neoliberalism in the time in Seattle. Like uh particularly folks who formed this organization called People's Coalition for Justice, which in the nineties, um, uh, you know, much like now like communities of color were like really hit by police violence really hard in like the late 90s in Seattle right um so one of the projects that the group had was actually to create a freedom school right so that was you know kind of um you know my first introduction to ethnic studies like it was like outside of the university right and I think that was an important lesson right ethnic studies is is like a you know an educational practice that existed in the university and entered existed outside of the university and entered the university right um and that freedom school was kind of an example of that um and i think it introduced me to kind of what we could call like the multiracial vision of black freedom right in terms of the organization was rooted in kind of these like uh you know national networks of of black community like around the 80s um, and like locally um, in Seattle but uh, you know in terms of you know there were like throughout the week there would be workshops around like indigenous youth activists you know fighting to change like the, the racist mascot in Seattle's like one of Seattle's high schools or there was an immigrant rights activist that would come in and break down what neoliberalism like is and like through talking about NAFTA Right. Um, And that was even though it was kind of like a black led space, it was always multiracial It was trying to to kind of think about uh, how do we think about all these things together. Right. I think now ethnic studies call ethnic studies scholars call that like a relational analysis. Right. But um, that was kind of something that was happening in the community that I was exposed to. Uh, And it was kind of funny because when I got into ethnic studies at the University of Washington, you know, there'd be comparative ethnic studies classes, but they would like take, each kind of community history like on its own terms, right? Where like the educational spaces and community organizing spaces that I was a part of were actually trying to think about all these things together, right? Um, so I think for me, like the type of thinking that I did like that I do now was really kind of shaped by being part of uh, those organizing spaces, you know, as someone who was like 18, 19, trying to like figure out how to like, you know, make the world better you know um and i think uh it's kind of funny like uh when i was an undergrad i really wasn't part of like filipino student groups i mean like you know i just love mexican right <laughs> you know what i mean like the ball head mustache you know what I'm saying uh so it was actually metro like when i first was walking on campus that recruited me right um but in terms of i think one thing that was like really important like um you know i think like a lot of student um of color groups on campus at the time of the University of Washington. Uh, they were kind of shaped by two things, right? Uh, they were shaped by like the anti affirmative action law that I mentioned earlier. But also like in 1999, like the WTO protests happened, right? So I think within like, at least from like my experience being in Mecha, like one kind of was like the attacks on affirmative action, like it grounded us in like a concrete political struggle of like genuine access to like quality education. Right. You know, so one thing that we did that I really gravitated towards was like we do high school outreach conferences. Right. In terms of even if it was predominantly bringing in like Chicano students, like, you know, their stories, these things that I, I related to, you know. Um, and then I think the W, what the WTO did in terms of WTO protest was it brought in like a internationalist politics. Right. You know, so for within Mecha, a lot of it was thinking about our connections to like, what was happening in Chiapas with the Zapatistas right but uh, there really was kind of this multiracial kind of like convergence within the group where um, even though it was still predominantly Chicano there were like uh, African-American members like there was more than more than just me in terms of the Filipino members there was probably three or four right Um, There were like even though like wasn't there were members like there were like some like You know, I remember like Palestinian students that would like, you know, support us. Right. You know, so it was really kind of, if you think of kind of like the Relational analysis and multiracial organizing what's happening in the freedom schools like on campus. I had Mecha that really kind of did the same thing. Right. So for me, like, I think even like my like involvement in Mecha was like like taught me something about solidarity and coalition politics. Like it wasn't just kind of coming together around like an issue, but it was like, you know, regardless of the struggle, folks struggling together, right? And growing our analysis together, right? Um, so I think I, I wouldn't, um, you know, ask kind of the, the questions around like solidarity and multiracial politics if it wasn't for my experience in these different organizations
1: yeah and actually i have a follow-up comment and question because i mean i mean you being in mecha actually is like pretty much um it it's it reminds me a lot of the history of you know filipino student activism in the 60s because you know a lot of those folks who were in kdp (laughs) before there was kdp they were in organizations like mecha or um the brown berets (laughs) so so it's actually not surprising to hear um about your involvement in in Mecha yeah. and and then I also wanted to ask like around this time even before like taking you know formal ethnic studies classes um at you know UW were you familiar with like Filipino like the Filipino like or the history of Filipino activism in Seattle basically were you familiar with that?
3: No actually uh well in terms of my family had like worked in the canneries like so my uncle first started working in the canneries in like the late eighties. He did it like for a short period of time because like he developed kind of like back problems from it. Um, but like my grandma and my auntie um pretty much continued working there till up until recently. Right. Uh so in terms of like I heard kind of stories of like the union. Right. Like I there were union members and like I knew a little bit about that, but um you know, I really didn't know anything about Filipino activism, right? Uh, it was actually a metro that I learned about the UFW and like having Filipino. Like it was like you know Chicago students who like were a little older than me that were mentoring me that like taught me about that. Right. Uh, so I think that's like an important story. Like, and I think you're right in terms of, I, I think I remember Estelle Habal talking about like the first uh, Filipino studies course was like in like Chicano study <laughs> that like, you at, at the university went to. Right. You know, so I, I think it's powerful to kind of like trace these like lineages. Right. Uh, and it really, um, you know, particularly when like, I think one folks are trying to figure out how to, how to do this work together too. And I think just like another thing too, uh, even when like Wayne, you you went down to uh, DC, like those networks were actually like one of my homies from Metro, like I introduced you to, <laughs> you know what I mean? He was doing like some, I think immigrant rights and housing rights work
2: yes. right out there.
3: You know, um, Renato Mendoza, right? So, um, oh, yeah. so in terms of, you know, really, one of the things is like we don't have to recreate stuff we have our networks we have these histories and we could just like lean into those and and like I think think about how you could turn those organic relationships into some like organizational structure right
2: I love that and I appreciate appreciate yeah. you for that uh, uh, Mike because that, that was uh, definitely a, a person who, who definitely helped me in terms of growing politically um mm-hmm. academically and just mm-hmm. around you see a new space. So yeah, I uh, love how you're building these uh, uh spaces of community, learning and unlearning, uh, not just within the Philippine and Philippine communities, but you yeah. know how it stems across the Chicano yeah. Chicano uh, like, uh communities and and beyond. Um and moving on to that, I wanna then ask the next question. What are some questions that you are seeking to address right now? What are you currently working on? Because I know you have a lot going on.
3: So I mean, uh, one I've been like working on this book project for a long time. Was, <laughs> Rob was pushing was pushing me to finish it, um, but uh, I, I could I guess I could talk about like the recent Alon article and then uh, work back to the book project. Um, but the you know the article I recently put out um, was actually trying to tell a multiracial like history of the Committee for Justice for Domingo and Vianney. So just to kind of like back up a little bit in 1981 two kdp activists and uh union reform organizers Somi domingo and gene Vierness, were murdered in their own union hall um, and it was really tied to um you know there was kind of these dual interests in terms of they were fighting these really kind of conservative union leaders who uh, essentially like did the work of like we're trying to bring back like a con a contract labor system right in terms of even though they were like they functioned as a union they like had an extractive relationship to their membership of like you know they set up illegal gambling rinks they like um you know um, found ways to uh, like uh, just extract like um seasonally earnings from like workers right so they were struggling against that but they were also you know building relationships with the kilusang uno um you know a labor confederation um, in the Philippines that was like anti-capitalist but uh, also uh, anti-Marcos in terms of like fighting against a dictatorship at the time. Um, so in terms of like I-, I think this is like a really, I wouldn't say there's like a huge amount of like research on this organization but I think within like Asian American studies and Filipinox American studies like the story has been like told and retold kind of through like personal narratives right. So uh, but one thing I wanted to do was a piece was actually like, there was like a deeply like multiracial um, membership of like the folks who kind of converged around kind of uh, come together for the Committee for Justice for Domingo and Veerness, Um in terms of, like, I think, at least in Seattle, like they create kind of these different outreach teams, which um, they're um, you know, product. say there was an anti-racist outreach team, there was a women's liberation outreach team, there was like an international solidarity outreach team. There was about like maybe eight or nine of them, at least in Seattle, right? So the goal was to actually, you know, talk to different communities about why they should like be invested in kind of the struggle for justice for Domingo and Veerness um but also there was like a deeply like multiracial analysis like in the i mean it might be like a really academic way of framing this but like i called it like a praxis of collective justice in the piece in terms of just kind of thinking broadly like i think i was really trying to kind of think about what does solidarity actually look like right so for me it was around learning from one another creating kind of organizations that fought for one another and re- refusing a narrow vision of justice that didn't include one another, right. Uh, and I think part of this is uh, some of the work I did when I was at UC Berkeley uh, with folks like Victoria Robinson um, around building relationships with critical resistance right and like for me like when I was looking at their organizing Um, and particularly the ways in which they were like understanding like the different ways the state was deploying state repression in like multiple kind of ways, like it felt like this was like an abolitionist politics, even though they weren't like, they didn't name it as such, right? Um, So so for me, like, uh, you know, one thing I want to highlight is, um, you know, um, in terms of they one of the things I really wanted to point to is like this analysis of fascism that they that they had, right? Um, and in terms of, um, and I use this quote from that uh, James Baldwin wrote when it's this letter that he wrote to Angela Davis. If they if you come for me in the morning, right? Uh, and really, um, you know, I think James Baldwin said, "If you we have to protect your life as if it is our your own, because." Because it is our own right like I'm paraphrasing a little bit but because if they come, if they come for you at night they're going to come for us in the morning. Right. And one way that I read this was, uh, you know, they were kind of there was this understanding within kind of like movements around like defending political prisoners and fighting against political repression that understood any attack on one segment of kind of the anti racist like internationalist like left increase the state's capacity to wage like forms of state violence against another group, right? So in terms of the ways in which they build community with folks, and like in the article I mentioned, they had a really close relationship with um, Chilean solidarity activists. Um, uh, you know, one person in particular um who was uh living in exile from the Pinochet regime regime in nineteen seventy six, his um he was like killed in a car bombing. Right. This happened in 1976. And this was like the Pinochet's like, um, you know, military forces, you know, work transnationally, right? And this was the same thing that was happening against Filipino activists in the 80s. Um, you know, but they also built relationships with uh Palestinian activists too, um, Central American activists who um and they were really reading kind of these different forms of state violence, whether it's like outright assassinations extradition law, deportations, as all like various forms of state violence that uh, could be enacted against folks who have like, uh, whose vulnerabilities are shaped by like race, immigration, status, and but for per- particular, uh, their anti-imperialist politics, right? Um, so in terms of, you know, I think it was important because, you know, I was writing this in the moment of like, um, you know Trump's ridiculousness. You know what I mean. <laughs> in terms, there's a lot of discourse around like fascism, right? And I think if you look at kind of this um, political period of like the late '60s and '70s, like movements actually had an analysis of this. That I think uh, it's really important to kind of get us to kind of think about in terms of they were thinking about this, like connecting it to like um uh, international internationalist anti capitalist movements dating back to the 1930s, uh, the black panthers were organizing coalition's around kind of this framework. Um, like I think in 1969 they held like this huge conference called a uh, united front against fascism conference right. Um, so in terms of folks were really like you know, for me, I was I wanted to kind of elevate this as an example of like a model of like a uh, coalition building that really kind of tried to kind of think about, um, you know, how folks were thinking about their like, even if their vulnerabilities to kind of state violence aren't the same, how are they thinking about them together and how are they building like movements that could like, right? Um, and I think this really all kind of comes from um, My larger kind of like book project I'm trying to do on um, Black and Filipino workers, too. Uh, So, uh, man, say this like, (laughs) I'll try to be like real brief about this. Do you have
1: Uh, a title? Do you have a working title?
3: No separate piece Uh, Black workers, Filipino workers, um, and the labor of solidarity. Right? You know, and part of it is um, I really actually wanted to kind of think about how solidarity requires work right, requires like organizational commitments. Uh, And I think to actually understand that, uh, and I think studying workers helped me understand that like we have to think of this as a form of labor, right, in terms of not as an exploitative form of labor, but like actually like, you know, the type of labor we want and need to do, right. Um, But in terms of that covers like three decade history of solidarity, um, in terms of for black workers, it was like, you know, just as like a way of example like um like most kind of building trades in major cities they were like deeply segregated it was like a form of like basically a way to the whiteness to kind of you know use the boys um and in terms of, as an example there was maybe like fifteen thousand like union um holding like members in like building trade unions in the 70s in seattle and like less than 10 of those members were were people of color right So in terms of like as a black power era emerged, like a lot of black workers like combined these struggles for community control to understand like let's have community control of these affirmative action programs to get us get into like these trades, but as folks kind of got into the trades like um, another context is um, You know black workers were um, or you know black community in Seattle like had like a 48% like unemployment rate. Right. And that's actually including folks who like just kind of gave up on looking for work. That's most unemployment numbers actually don't include those folks. Right. So they quickly developed like anti-capitalist politics and like in conversation with like third world radicals. They were reading folks like Amokar Cabral, you know, African revolutionary, um, and really kind of thinking about like, um, kind of like a, developing a third world Marxist kind of framework. And at, at around this time, they were kind of supporting cannery workers who were also waging kind of their struggles within the canneries, right? So um, really like I frame this as like kind of like a relational social movement history in terms of actually thinking about how their relationships shaped their politics, right? Um, but I think for me, um, in terms of like as a student of like Afro-Asian solidarity, like I think the research really focused forced me to kind of think about the class politics of Afro-Asian solidarity, right? Because, um, you know, in terms of, if you think about the literature and folks who I like, learned from in terms of like reading their work, like from think of like Gerald Horn, think of, like Robin Kelly, um, Diane Fugino, um, you know, all these folks kind of centered Band- the Bandung Conference, kind of like a 1955 kind of conference that brought together um, you know African Asian kind of nations was seen as like this defining moment of civil sort of solidarity right, but when I talked to like workers um, that were part of these struggles in Seattle. Uh, they said that was important, but they also said we were working class people right so for them like. Um, it was kind of their day to day kind of struggles of surviving like um, you know, economic vulnerability, but also, like, they had kind of this critique of, like, class hierarchies in their own community, right? You know, and for the cannery workers, it was actually their union. It was like, you know, you know, Filipino union leaders who were, like, extracting wages from them that were, like, weren't fighting the the industry to get them better, like, better contracts, right? So in terms for me, like I had to kind of find a framework and it really was like racial capitalism, the black radical tradition. Right. Uh, And I think one like uh, feature of kind of that literature that doesn't get enough like attention is there was actually this deep critique of the black middle class, you know, as a kind of a buffer class between like white power structures and and the black masses. You know, at UC Berkeley, I was like, I was lucky to take classes with Robert Allen, who was really crucial to kind of thinking about this framework, right? He wrote a book in the seventies called Black Awakening in Capitalist America. Um, But I think a critique that uh, Cedric Robinson doesn't get enough credit for is, uh, he had a really important critique of like the black middle class and like black Marxism that was actually at the level of consciousness, right? In terms, like he argued that, you know, the Black middle class throughout the diaspora were so immersed in Western society that it disconnected them from the masses and disconnected them, them from what he called the Black radical tradition, right? So it was like he talked about the boys, um, you know, CLR James and Richard Wright actually finding the Black radical tradition, not like, not, you know, identifying it or like creating it, right? Um, and then another thing that he said was, uh, first they found it in their history, then it f- they found it all around them. So in terms of thinking about movements, right? So, I, so one of the stories that I think is really important for me is to actually think about how um, you know, Filipino like youth activists who um, you know, had to go to the canneries to pay for college, you know, found like a f- Philippine radical, diasporic tradition of activism. Right. You know, in kind of not only like Carlos Bulessant's writing, but he was also like created this yearbook in nineteen fifty two of County Workers that like was talking about solidarity, was a hook by La Hab, you know, was talking about um, you know, transnational solidarity more broadly, um, but really from like a, a working class kind of politics, right? Um, and like a right to move, right? In terms of had a critique of like borders, right? Um so um, like for me, like the book is really actually trying to think about this uh, solidarity, not as just kind of like concrete forms of support, but um, like the convergence of a black and Philippine radical tradition in terms of that was, would cross fertilize across, you know, three decades and inform each other, um, you know. So in terms of, that's really what the book's trying to do. I got to finish writing it, <laughs> you know, but of, uh, you know, hopefully it'll get done in uh, a year or two.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think that's such a great intervention because I think like when we look at Black Asian solidarity as the way it's usually been taught in Asian American studies, or Asian American studies, it usually comes out as just kind of moments in history.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but it seems like here you're actually um, analyzing like a historical relationship. Um, Absolutely which is very important um, to understand, (laughs) I think. And so I think that is a really good, like a really innovative intervention in um, Asian American studies. And also, it also reminds me of, um, okay, so I'm from Chicago. So, you know, Fred Hampton is a big figure here. And it reminds me of this quote that he said that, you know, we're going to fight racism, not with racism, but we're going to fight it with solidarity. Um, And we say we're not going to fight capitalists with, capitalism with Black capitalism, but we're going to going to fight it with socialism. And so I think that, yeah, whenever when you were talking, I was like, wow, that reminds me so much of Hampton and his politics. Um, so, yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, I just want to you know,
1: give you so much encouragement because I'm really excited to read this.
3: <laughs> yeah, and I think like one thing, when we put these stories together, we realize they're not like exceptional, right? This was like a politics that existed. Um, in terms of um, like one, I think folks should read like, uh, you know, Tyree Scott was like really, he was like really humble. He was like really like, fo- I-, I consider him like Seattle's Fred Hepton right? Cause he really tried to kind of bring folks together. He coined this term, no separate piece was kind of the idea uh, Obviously, like, that's like the title of the book that I'm like pulling off of, um, but he like the idea was when like white workers were like trying to keep black workers out of their jobs, out of like the construction trades, like he's arguing they accepted a separate piece, right? And I think part of the analysis was like, um, there's like the way in which capitalism like reproduces itself is getting different segments of the working class to accept a separate piece, right? So no separate piece was really drawn kind of trying to kind of think about um, Trying to kind of challenge that that structural dimension of capitalism, of racial capitalism, right? Um, and I just think too, um, you know, one, I think as like a teacher, like when I talk about Afro Asian solidarity, like, and I think it's like, well intention and and like i think this is real right in terms of you know students want to kind of go into like talking about like anti-blackness in the asian community right you know i think that's like when we have to deal with that absolutely but it's almost like that's the only relate way in which these communities relate to one another right and i think it's important to kind of you know in our day-to-day reaction we're, we're not always fighting right and i think elevating kind of those examples um and to i think for an organization that's similar like uh cav in new york committee against anti-asian violence in terms of like you know i think Simeon mann has like a great analysis of like talking about anti-asian violence and racial capitalism and he talks about cav having this like you know, emerging out of kind of these forms of anti-Asian violence, but, um, you know, having this like deep analysis of understanding that the roots of anti-Asian violence is like racial capitalism producing settler settler colonialism and uh, chattel slavery, right, Um, but if you look at how they quickly kind of move in terms of the, thinking about kind of like the structural vulnerabilities that uh working class asian american communities faced uh, they quickly moved to like housing organizing right but then having convers since they were rooted in kind of these coalitions against um you know uh racist violence and police violence like they they're doing the analysis with their members um uh, and it's not always like um you know, perfect kind of stories of coming to consciousness right but in terms of like they're like trying to make the connections of what's the connections between police violence and and your housing insecurity right Uh, so I think when we began to kind of do these like solidarity histories like we could actually put all these things together and like you know um, you know find models and like actually understand that this isn't like Solidarity isn't exceptional, but it's like a concrete struggle that and a tradition in all of our communities.
2: Love that, thanks, Mike. It's oh yeah, really funny work, and um, I'm also really excited to read it and to share some you and, and, and other students uh, and, and, and community members. So thank you. Yeah, for that. yeah,
3: and and one shout out. Um, I don't know, if folks, know Jordan Gonzalez. He was like, uh, he was kind of my big homie when I was in uh, UC Berkeley's graduate program. He's an amazing uh, uh, copy editor, so I'm working with him. I think now that I'm working with him, like using the rest of my startup funds <laughs> to get this book done. Hopefully, it'll get done soon. But I think that's uh, that's another kind of important story of like, like our field and our collective and folks like we can lean on each other to, you know, get good work out there.
2: Love that, shout out to Jordan, shout out to Tracy, at Buena yep. Vista, of yep.
1: Yeah, so I think the next question is about, because um, I think your work, first of all, I think you and Mike Viola should have a session where you two geek out, because <laughs> he's so, so. also working on stuff on, you know, this Filipino radical tradition. Okay. Um, cool. So anyway, highly recommend that. <laughs> but yeah, ne- so,
3: next episode.
1: Yeah. And I think too, just like, because he's also working on this book. So I think you two could, you know, really feed off of one another. Yeah, Uh, yeah, Mike squared. (laughs) So, um, but anyway, like (laughs) going to, um, you know, critical Filipino studies, Filipinic studies um, for you. I think your work definitely is, you know, part of this kind of, I guess, new wave or I don't know if this, yeah, this new wave of scholarship that's been coming out in Filipino studies that is engaged with, um, you know, really engaged with social movements, whether it's in the past or the present. Um, So for you, I mean, what does critical Filipino studies mean? What does it mean to you as a scholar, um, as someone who has, you know, been educated, not just through like, you know, ethnic studies classes, but really how ethnic studies functions in the world through social movements. So yeah, what does it mean to you?
3: For me, I I think I always see ethnic studies as like a way of being in the world, not necessarily like a discipline, right? Uh, And for me, like I I understand like the turn towards critical, like for me, like it's always, if it's not critical, it's not ethnic studies. That's always been my position. Um, But, you know, in terms of I I think critical, in terms of what's necessary was you know just thinking about how the impacts of being institutionalized uh, like i always go back one of my daughter's favorite songs is power struggle kkk cops <laughs> so in terms of a line that nomi has in there is uh in terms of when people are talking about like they're good police officers too he's like it's a structure And but he has a particular line in terms of you know police are appendage of the state and capital right so I think about when we think about institutionalization we think about you know the different kind of forms of domination that universities are implicated in like I think we have to kind of grapple with what what it means when ethnic studies become the arm of the state and capital too like and we could think about the different ways of I think we all have different stories of of you know what institution like the limits of institutionalization of what we've experienced in our different graduate programs um but one i think we have to kind of be like critical of what um being institutionalized within the university has done to uh the political project or our field right and we have to kind of fight that um, but two i think for me like i lean towards like uh, thinking about it two ways. One, thinking about, and I lean a lot towards uh, the work of Walter Rodney, right? I kind of have like a weird relation to Filipino American studies because I'm like, you know, I'm, I studied because it's my community that I care about. But, um, you know, most of my mentors when I was in graduate school and even in community spaces were like um, Black Studies scholars, like just to name a few, Eula Taylor, uh, Waldo Martin, Again, like Robert Allen, um, big shout out to Chicano scholars, like Profe Carlos Munoz Jr., who like had my back from the jump when I was in graduate school, um, deeply kind of committed, like organic intellectual. Um, so in terms of like, for me, like I, I always feel like I, I enter um, Filipino American studies through like what I learned, particularly from the field of like, of black studies and like the black radical tradition, right? Uh, so I think Walter Rodney has this book called "Grounding with My Brothers," where grounding was like a form of pedagogy, right? Where the book is a collection of like public talks that he gave in in the community when he was like working in Jamaica, right? Um, and the the project was like you know he'd go to the community, figure out what they want, and then he'd like actually give lectures based upon like the community struggles that they faced, right? And for me, like we could think of grounding as a form of pedagogy and a form of like community-engaged like research that we need to do in terms of really thinking about um, grounding with our community, thinking about the organic relation, having developing research questions and pedagogies out of having a grounded relationship with organic struggles, right? Gr- organic, organic struggles, uh, community-based struggles too. Um, also, Walter Rodney came up with this term like a guerrilla intellectual," right? In terms of we have to wage like ideological struggle within the university, right? Because I think the scholarship that's produced within the university like does harm in the world, right? Like we could think of <clears throat> like broken windows policing as like a discourse that emerged from like academics and then like gets filtered into like policing practices that like you know does harm and violence in our
2: communities,
3: right? Um, and then one of my colleagues at uh, Western Washington University, Nada El- Elia, um, says, if our communities are the belly of the beast, the university is the brain of the monster, right? So I think we have to kind of think about uh, in our like research and our teaching, how do we confront the brain of the monster and make sure like, you know, uh, you know basically like overcrowd the brain of the monster, and make sure like our students don't get it a- <laughs> Get, get exposed to something else. Right. Um, and I think, uh, you know, being critical, like, is for me, like, to recreate kind of the spaces that I had. You know, people like use the term safe space in classrooms. I really don't like that. Um, and for me, like, I think we have to think about being like what critical social connect studies needs to do is actually create spaces of solidarity, right? That are rooted in like the politics of these different movements. Um, that have to, you know, I was just kinda of thinking about kind of like the the hostility of what it means to, you know, for some of my students who like are in all white classrooms where like people are saying like, you know, vile shit, like, <laughs> like as an instructor you have to be in solidarity and back up students who are like, you know, fighting kind of those battles in the classroom. Right, um, so for me, those are just a couple of things in terms of gotta be grounded, gotta like wage intellectual struggle within the university and you have to be, develop a pedagogy that's in solidarity with, um, with our communities and our students.
2: Love that, thank you so much, Mike. Cool. It's great.
1: I love all these quotes just coming in. Yeah. 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 I <laughs> yeah, I love all the things that you're saying. I'm yeah. like, wow. Okay. This is the brain of the monster one. who yeah. is this?
3: Who said it again? So so Nada Ella, elia Nada uh, Ella. She's a Palestinian scholar mm-hmm. over here. Um, she was just brilliant, you know. Uh, and so she said this in a panel uh, last week, and I, I was still like racking my brain, right? Uh, but actually, like you know, what it means to do, like, work within the university when you think of the university as the brain of the monster, right? Um, and I still, I'm still trying to figure out what that means, right? But um, in terms of, like, I think these are kind of the conversations, like, we need to have.
2: I love this. Thanks so much, Mike. Yeah. Uh, this is for our final question. And yeah. I'm, oh, we're ending on, on this one, it's, uh, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. But what okay. are your types of hope? Uh, especially in, in current times and, and and reflection of the past, and reflection uh-huh. of all the interconnected struggles you've been referencing in your work and your scholar activist work. What are your signs of hope right now?
3: Uh, I think for me, uh, you know, once like my kids, I'm, I I think like I'm always in awe of my daughter. Um, in terms, of, like I said, her favorite rappers are like Ruby Ibarra and like Power Struggle, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? and, and I just like, maybe not like, politically advanced is the right word, but like I was not at that at nine years old, right? You know, and if like a nine year year old could get kind of that vision of social justice, I'm like, we have our future freedom fighters out there. You know what I mean? And I think for me, that's that what gives me hope. Um, you know, my son's only two, but uh, in terms of just kind of like always kind of reminding me to like embrace joy Right, you know, one of the things that I learned from one of my mentors at the University of Washington, Rick Bonus, is like because uh, he was like really he came into the university like in uh, I think the late nineties or early two thousands, um, and he was really uh, supportive of the different kind of struggles students of color were waging on campus. Well, what he always says. Um, you know, one thing I'd, I'd say is like, folks, check out Ocean in the School, this amazing book on Pacific Islander struggles at the University of Washington. He says, you know, they were like, actually, at the end of the day, the students he was working with, like, weren't, we think of activism as kind of like confronting the state, confronting institutions, but they were fighting for joy, right? They were fighting for spaces of joy within this institution. Um, and I think my son like the way in which he finds joy in like absolutely everything <laughs> you know is something that gives me a lot of hope and like it gives me a reminder of of you know why we do the work we do um, and then also I've been uh, you know really lucky to be part of um, this ethnic studies faculty collective at the at Western Washington University where I'm at right now in terms of Just some backstory from 1969 to 1977 there was a college of ethnic studies so we're kind of like the second college of ethnic studies that existed in the country, but then it quickly got defunded into a program that didn't have the power to tenure faculty right Um, so we're like we're organizing this conference and bringing like. uh, um, You know, we had Jason Ferreira at SS state be our keynote uh, who helped create like the Department of Race and Resistance Studies. Uh, we have just had amazing like, you know, folks in the field like come in like a Teresa Johnson, uh, Naomi Pack, um, you know, David Stovall, like the list goes on, right. Uh, so in terms of just seeing the deep level of solidarity that um, you know scholars and practitioners and ethnic studies have for had for like for our our struggle and like they just share these deeply personal stories and what we' were just thinking like these fools don't know us they were like <laughs> they didn't have to be that intimate they didn't have to share kind of struggles but you know that's the solidarity that exists in our communities right um and like a fight for I think of like concept no separate peace right you know when we win, one one of our communities win like we all win because we we're provided with an example, right? And we see our power actualized, right? So I, I think that just gives me a lot of hope. Um and then being in conversation with y'all, like I think um uh, seeing like there's really like new spaces of collectivity being produced like daily. Right. Um and I think um uh, there's so much so much potential, so much hope. Um uh, we got to um, and I think the way in which power works is, is by isolating us, right? Like thinking that we're struggling alone, right? So I think, you know, spaces like this uh, remind us that, that we're not. And I, I'm just thankful to be part of this conversation. I'm like uh, really hopeful for, um, you know, um,
2: spaces like this to grow. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Mike. I'll go ahead, and pass it to Joy. if there's any follow-up questions or next.
1: Uh... Well, I don't have any follow-up questions, but I just want to say thank you for being part of this podcast. I mean, I don't know. It's just, I love just also interviewing my friends and colleagues yeah. and just peeking out with them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just kind of, obviously, it would be more dynamic in person, but... Yeah. I mean, this pandemic has really, like you said, it isolated us obviously for health reasons, public health reasons, but that isolation like does make you feel alone. It makes you feel like you're kind of struggling through this global crisis by yourself. Um, But I mean, stuff like this really reminds me that, you know, we're in community together that we're doing important work, not just by ourselves but we're doing it together. Even if we're, you know, we you know, you're typing up your manuscript, I'm typing up my <laughs> manuscript. Like, like we're in conversation with one another. Um, so yeah, but anyway, any last things you wanna say, Michael?
3: Um, no, well, folks out looking for jobs, uh, I think there might be some um, developing in um, at our college, uh, come work with us, you know. I'm going to be real, Bellingham's an 80% white city. I don't want to sugarcoat it. But, you know, we're, we're really building some, I feel like we're building something special, you know. Uh, so, uh, and one, just uh, thank you again for, you know, actually like, you know, building like Critical Philippine X Studies Collective again. And like, actually, I'm excited to like, you know, put my students on to what y'all are doing. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm just like, like I, I feel like, like I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, this is. Uh, I feel like I've made it, you know, in terms of y'all are thinking of like I'm producing something special. Like uh, that's the validation I need, not from necessarily from the university.
2: For sure, Mike, and um, just a personal thank you um, again for your mentorship, not just for me, but for many of us uh, in the field. A lot of folks who are looking for a home in ethnic studies, in American studies. Like I honestly, again. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be in grad school without you, bro. Like, or without you, Dr. Castaneda. I really appreciate you. And it's, it's like, I think Joy or, or, or Val spoke about this, is rivers of mentorship, mentorship and guidance, right? Yeah. What the collective's about. So it's a beautiful thing to see these, these things come together, come full circle to see folks build together, uh, fight together uh, and being in the struggle and solidarity together. So it's a beautiful thing. So thank you for your time and for your story.
3: Uh, you give me too much credit man i'm like uh like one you're brilliant two you make me relevant in these spaces now you know what i'm saying uh <laughs> so uh but, but i really appreciate all of y'all uh yeah definitely like keep me in the loop of what y'all doing i want to be part of it
1: <laughs> yeah so yeah
3: that's a wrap thanks everyone okay cool see all you right.
1: in the next episode
3: <laughs> oh, <not> for sure <laughs>